I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. We were discussing how interestingly women seem to be more comfortable to be naked around each other, but men really fear to be in each other's company when naked. I mean, why is it that feeling close to a man if you're a man is weird? Could it be because we never witnessed physical intimacy from our fathers growing up or the first male figures of our lives? I discovered something about uh, these people, the Mundari people of South Sudan. They have this dance where like boys and men dance completely nude. And I think the girls and women do it separately, which I found so magnificent because as, as a child, you grow up not having a complicated uh, relationship with men around you. Because you've been naked to each other since you were kids. This is a practice which would be termed as absurd today. And then I also discovered that boys are closer when they are younger. Because I remember myself growing up, like I had really close boy friendships when our idea of intimacy was yet to be misconstrued. We played all sorts of games in Kenya that ranged from police and robber, wrestling, driver and tout operating a public bus, sports, and, and others. It was so deep that sometimes a day would feel incomplete if you hadn't spent it with your friend. But as we moved into our teenage, all of a sudden there was need for competition. There was this tension that had been created. And all we had been taught about that time of our lives was that your voice would deepen, uh, your, your, your shoulders would broaden, um, and stuff like that. But there was more insistence on what changes were happening to girls around us like they'd say yo the hips broaden their breasts come out um the whole shebang about the fallopian tube and now menstruation and all that and still information was really really scanty i don't even remember my science teacher explaining to me what wet dreams were i could notice there was some kind of excitement <laughs> in my penis when I thought about sex or sexual excitement but I couldn't explain it and I didn't have anybody to talk to about this stuff and the more we grew we ended up pegging our identity on our physicality like the size of our muscles the size of our penis the depth of our voice how many women or men we sleep with our net worth at never really engaging our emotional health, which of course leads to severe suffering. Idealized masculine bodies generally center on masculine ideals of stoicism, power, control, dominance, and sexual desirability into the physical and or material traits of strength, function, size, and shape. The question is, why is male identity so centered on male physicality? The male script from childhood. Immediately you're born, it's discovered, uh, he has a penis. You are groomed for toughness, both for dominance and capital. Men's bodies are in their future a resource for capitalism and hard labor. Bell Hooks, in her book, The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity and Love, says the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, 
he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. And then I also began to wonder, what is the role of religion in shaping society and these ideas about who men ought to be? I went to the Bible, Genesis 2.15, and the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. We pass this verse all the time, but I think it's a powerful political statement. The man is told he's in charge of the land. What does that mean? He can control economies, natural resources, agriculture, commerce, where and how people live. Basically, he owns the earth and anything in it. If you get it into a boy's head that he should own and control the land by virtue of him identifying as a man, tell me what that does to his mind. This is the promise he grows up expecting in his adulthood. Without knowing, he's being groomed for something bigger. Now walk with me. What was man's punishment for eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and evil? Genesis 3.17 To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now this guy, from owning the land, your transgressions have caused it to be cursed. So henceforth, you shall eat by your sweat. I mean, that would mess anybody up. We were never even told how Adam processed this new reality. I would imagine that was difficult to deal with. In retrospect though, there's a seemingly deeper insight to this story. In the reality of the world today, God is a white man. He owns and controls the land, economies, natural resources, agriculture, commerce, where and how people live. He decides how he shall be worshipped and in what language. He measures the price of life. He decides who lives and who dies. He punishes you for knowing too much because I would imagine it's a threat to his existence. But further, he uses poor men's bodies for his endeavors, his ideas, his fantasies, his desires, and by a grandiose magnitude, his monstrous greed. It's poor men who are sweating for food. It's poor men tilling the land day and night, construction, transporting heavy loads of goods, extraction, high-risk jobs with exposure to harmful chemicals and what have you. Now listen keenly to the woman's punishments. The writers of this text were very clever storytellers. They knew how powerful these words were and what they would do to shape the world. To the woman, he said, Genesis 3.16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Get that? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You can imagine the first spiritual instruction you get as a girl is that a man rules over you. That you'll always desire and long for him. And if you're a boy, 
that the land belongs to you. You own it. I chose biblical allusion because of its connection to white supremacy and imperialism. The real trap is boys are alienated from their emotions from a young age so that they can harden up early so their bodies can be used as capital to gain wealth. How aware of your body are you as a man listening to this? I've heard countless stories from women purporting that Men are exceedingly uptight during sex. You ask him what he wants, he has no idea. Where does he like being touched? He'll probably just mention his penis. Does he have any sexual fantasies? Well, majority of them come straight from a porn site. What informs the general idea of an African man's perception of sexuality and intimacy today? Why is it that men seem to know so little about the pleasure of their own bodies and how to please, especially their female partners, yet they conventionally assume dominance over sex matters, I dare say, on a global scale. We return to where it all began. You were born with a penis. The script slapped on your face depicted that you are to grow to dominate, own, rule and control. You are systematically alienated from your body. That whole process of solidifying and benumbing you into this staunchly stone-faced by heart and soul warrior. You are, by many exploitative means beyond you, dehumanized and brutalized for the benefit of a rich man dozens of years into your future because of how resourceful your body is for business. In 20-30 years time, when you are ripe for reproduction, you will most definitely show up for it performatively as a duty. One, for your selfish pleasure to maintain your stoicism. Two, as a social expectation. It all becomes a performance. In fact, that very script forced down your throat at birth made you an actor in a dirty play and you spend your whole life trying to figure out your own character. By the time the play is done, you still cannot recognize yourself. I'd call that... Androcide, the systemic killing of men, boys, or males in general. I have another hypothesis that explains the distressing twists on men's perceptions of sex and intimacy. First, by quoting the great Marcus Garvey, he said, Liberate the mind and you can liberate the body. Our upbringings eventually shape our worldviews. Who we were socialized to grow into, in due course, we become. From how I see it, Men are socialized to exist outside the home, where things are on the move from business, sports, construction, tourism, extraction, and the like. What is needed for these kind of activities, say roughly muscles or rather athleticism, professionalism, self-containment, and intelligence quotient? Women, on the other hand, are socialized to exist in the home, where things move from the inside the family house chores childbearing nurturing and the like what is needed for these kind of activities say emotional quotient physical attractiveness empathy we can add spirituality there and social political quantifications of morality boys are systematically designed to exist outside their bodies 
girls are systematically designed to exist inside their bodies. These two modes of nurturing have immense, long-lasting psychosocial implications. They not only deeply engrave the continuation of gender roles into the social fabric, but also make them incredibly rigid, such that men's and women's minds are held up by the notions of how they were taught to be in adulthood when they were kids. They imitated a sequence until they became experts in it. So because a man does not know how to exist within himself, he'll have trouble expressing what's going on inside his body. And since he is taught he rules over a woman, he passes on his emotional labor to the women in his life to do the work of feeling on his behalf. At one level, men's social identity is defined by the power they have over women and the power they can compete for against other men. But on another level, most men have very little power over their own lives. To understand men's power over women, we have to understand the ways in which men feel women have power over them, men's power relationships with other men, and the powerlessness of most men in the larger society. In explaining how men transfer their emotional labor on women, we see that traditional relationships with women have provided men a safe place in which they can recuperate from the stresses they have absorbed in their daily struggle with other men and in which they can express their needs without fearing that these needs will be used against them. Many men have learned to depend on women to help them express their emotions, indeed to express their emotions for them. At an ultimate level, Many men are unable to feel emotionally alive except through relationships with women. But here's where the hot soup is at. Women are saying, we don't want this life no more because it dehumanizes our existence. We want more. We are much as worthy to work outside the home as you men. We deserve equal pay for the same work we do. We have a right to education and land ownership. A right to air our views in dispute resolution. And I was on a date the other day. We sat put in the restaurant booth, dreamingly gaping into each other's eyes. It may have been just another date in the books, but this had a different air to it. I am not wife material, she muttered. Let's talk about that, she said. I meet men who say they want this or that kind of a woman, wash for him, cook for him, and be some kind of sex goddess. In fact, some man told me he cannot marry a woman who doesn't cook. So yes, I'm not wife material. I'm lazy. I don't like house chores. I'm the one who wakes up at noon to ask people where the food is. <laughs> we chuckle. I shared how bewildered I was growing up to discover these are legit expectations men lord over women. My mother would kill me if I expected anyone to do these things for me. The world was strange. It reminded me of Warren Farrell's 1993 controversial book, The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Are the Disposable Sex, in which he claims that the women's movement has led to the resocialization of girls to become women who balance survival with fulfillment, but that there has been no similar resocialization of boys to become men who pursue that balance once they take on the responsibility of children or I could add family, or just basically sexual relationships. 
Farrell believes boys and men are decades behind girls and women psychologically and socially, and increasingly behind women academically and economically. In his recent presentations on this topic, he estimates that men are in 2011 where women were in 1961. Something to think about? I feel like a lot of men struggle with this. The old ideas of what relationships were with rigid gender roles and the juice of women's emancipation. Most of us are stuck back there and it's showing. We wouldn't know what intimacy looks like because majority of us are dying by the script we were given at childbirth. Be heard, dominate, own and control. But you see, we were drilled to control other people before first knowing how to control ourselves how to develop a language to express our own feelings, our emotions. So often our relationships languish on the extremities of if it's not my way, then it's the highway. That is a direct response to trauma. In the period of my life between 1997 and 1999, my family lived in Huruma Estate on the eastern side of Nairobi. It was fairly an informal segment by the standards of those days. We stayed in a single room, me, mom, dad, my younger brother, and house manager. Just outside our house, next to the window, was a broken sewer which was always brimming with waste and a horrible smell. Right outside the flat, there was a drinking den where they'd sell this traditional brew called busa. I have no idea if it has an English name. It's an alcoholic beverage produced from millet. And these men would camp there from 8 a.m. late into the night every single day, telling stories, gassing each other up, and many other times fighting. They would fight so bad, sometimes dislocating each other's body parts. I witnessed too much blood. It wasn't a healthy place for a child to grow up in, and yet we had no other spaces to play as kids. Back in our house, I endured more violence because my parents fought a lot. Much of it starred from my dad. I remember asking myself, why is everyone fighting all the time? This was me at 10 years old, 10, and already exposed to this. Men just seemed so strange to me. The way they related to each other. I kept wondering how mysterious they were because I saw them shouting in the stadium or watching football from a television and they looked so happy together. Then they would switch their emotions so quick and, and start pounding each other's heads. I was just like, this is too much to take. As Azense Were puts it in her book, Drivers of Violence, Male Disempowerment in the African Context. Violence is the ultimate expression of disempowerment. Expression of violence against self and others is the dominant symptom of disempowerment. African men have been a target of violence, particularly through their experiences in the slave trade and colonialism. This has been happening subsequently for about the last 600 years. In terms of the effects of violence on victims of violence, short-term effects include physical injury and handicap, loss or destruction of property, including land and houses, loss of family members and displacement. The long-term effects include post-traumatic stress symptoms such as avoidance of activities, places or people that arouse recollections of the trauma, avoidance of thoughts, feelings or conversations associated with the trauma, irritability or outbursts of anger 
and intense psychological distress at exposure of traumatic reminders. Other long-term effects include low self-esteem, anxiety, emotional numbing or inability to express emotions, fear, depression and anger. An additional effect on the person on the receiving end of violence for a long time is the normalization of violence where they think solving problems through violent means is normal. Are these familiar traits in how a lot of men are described in our society today? Could we begin joining the dots as to what might have caused the severe shortage of what we might call sensible masculinity? Most African men have been both on the receiving and giving end of violence on an enormous scale, almost uninterrupted since the 1400s. It's true that prior to the slave trade, there had been intra-African tribal wars, but these were small-scale and occasional as was the case on all continents. But what the slave trade did was to increase a millionfold the scale of unprovoked violence in Africa as well as target the violence toward Africans. In the post-independence era, Africa has witnessed civil war upon civil war where mainly African men choose to turn on each other and kill themselves and each other's families rather than discuss their problems in a give-and-take environment and explore possible non-violent solutions. From the civil wars in Sudan, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Côte d'Ivoire, to the genocides in Rwanda and Burundi and Darfur, African men continue to subject each other to incomprehensible levels of violence. This violence is not only being practiced on large scale where communities kill and beat each other up, but it's also in the home putting loved ones at risk. And by this, it's definitely women and children. These acts of violence and the ever-present potential for male violence against other men reinforces the reality that relations between men, whether at their individual or state level, are relations of power. This goes as directly as just thinking about the scramble for Africa and European powers scuffling to get the best pieces of this continent, both for prestige and economic violence. James Baldwin said it in a 1971 conversation he had with Nikki Giovanni, both formidable black writers and activists in their time, that because what the world does to you, if the world does it to you long enough and effectively enough, you begin to do to yourself. And I'm going to repeat that Bell Hooks quote I shared earlier just to put this into critical and further context. The first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. Patriarchy weakens and terrorizes men and impedes sincere bonding between most males because it encourages males to view each other as competitors. I remember in one of the many beatings my father meted upon me, he'd go like, Now you think you're a man? Because the idea of sharing space with another man presents a threat. Tell you what, it is by design that men often come off as enablers, bystanders, or collaborators of violence, especially against women, simply by their silence. 
they fear losing credibility amongst other men, amongst each other. It is so deeply rooted, it's become subconscious. They fear to be emasculated or simply be made to feel as less of men, so they stay silent. That is a result of heavily invested, deep-seated, thick and sour generational male trauma. There is no way this man would know who he is. It is from the internal conflicts within him spanning hundreds of years back, not just his lifetime, that he participates actively or passively in the degradation of women's and children's bodies, but most highly in the degradation of his own body by virtue of deeming himself unworthy of expressing his emotions healthily among other diehard self-destructive pacts emulated in the masculinity spectrum. As patriarchy has designed women to be sex objects, it assigns to men the role of violence object. I can count the number of times I saw my father go to hospital. You see, I grew up around tough men. They barely got sick, and when they were, they battled the sickness out first before opting for a health facility. I didn't know whether the purpose was to sharpen their resilience or they just didn't vibe with hospitals. I remember only once seeing my father bedridden. He was down with typhoid and that gave him quite a ride. I was 12 at the time, never seen him severely sick ever since. To be honest, not that my mother has been sicker, but... She certainly has frequented hospital more than much I can remember. My whole life, I have only ever seen my father's tears once. During a fight he had with mom. Something must, must have gotten through to him. I've never seen his male siblings cry, nor have I ever seen my grandfather's shed a tear. But I have witnessed anger and aggression in these men. I have witnessed violence from these men. On the flip side... And I think this is important to say. My father had some positive attributes I verily fell in love with and which perhaps I'll need a whole episode to dive into just to shed more light. He had a great sense of humor and, and, a, and a skilled storyteller. I mean, being a teacher, he had a way with words that made you just want to keep listening to him for hours on end. His work ethic was the staff of champions, which I wanted to emulate, which I think I emulate. In my teenage years, there was a time I hated my mother. She shouted too much. Her voice was always up and screeching. She was violent towards me too, but never anything near as harmful as dad's violence was. In time, I noticed her change into a more understanding person with my emotions. She recognized my emotional suffering and tried all she knew to hold space for me. I definitely needed softer landings. Later I learned it was the stress in her marriage, much of it coming from dad's discouraging behavior, that made her act out. A cycle of violence trickled down from parent to child and which I was almost by design meant to inherit and pass on to someone else, a partner, a child, or my environment. But I wanted none of it. I wanted it to stop with me. I envisioned an adult me that was more in touch with himself, a conducive and safe space 
for his peers and anyone who came across him, a man seeking to create healthy communities by the power of his purity and his essence. It meant I had to consciously unharden myself from the shackles of both superiority and inferiority complex that comes with being a man in this world, the misinterpretation and misappropriation of male power, the overly systemic self-hate shoved down on me by virtue of being an African male that fires me to want to look down on other black or African men and by a huge extension black and African women. As Frederick Douglass wittfully put it, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I tell you, the unlearning process has taken me energy of immense proportions. Obviously, lacking healthy male figures to look up to has made it even more strenuous. Yet, life is extremely demanding of change or love, of time and of understanding such that without proper social support and a robust sense of being, it is incredibly easy to go under and never recover. As boys, we are stolen from our bodies from the moment we start talking. Our words get swallowed in the chaos of existence, forced to fit into a ruthless society that aims to use us for the benefit of a few and the suffering of many. To which I say, This is what we have to reverse if only to save the children, if not ourselves. If Africa will stand a chance of stopping the systemic exploitation that continues to rob her of her dignity, her pride, her resources, it has to start with courage. The courage of a few men who of course will be fought down by their peers, but we have no choice than to die on this hill. My body has scars I'm not afraid to speak about. From my teeth to my back, it's a museum with endless stories. I grew up being violated and meant to believe violence was a show of love. And I guess it's part of the reason some people say we were beaten but turned out okay. I didn't. My brain suffered later after the beatings stopped. The body keeps the score, as Bessel van der Kock puts it. The tremors manifested in depression, post-traumatic stress, and anxiety, which I had to battle since I was 15 to about 30. The triggers still come, but I have more control over them now. We may not know how childhood violence of any nature affected us, but look at how we hate our bodies how we constantly judge each other from appearance, how the politics of likability largely depends on your looks, how we constantly seek approval and validation from without. We hate our bodies. Capitalism demeans our bodies. We go to suicidal lengths to satisfy our desires, to forget our pain, anything that will help us forget the trauma registered in our bodies. Yet, until you come home to yourself, you'll never really settle. If there's anything that has kept me here this long, it's that I accepted my body. With its many imperfections, I loved it. I stopped being afraid of it. I cherish it. I nourish it. I pleasure it. This goes to the men. We have to stop relying on women's bodies to feel good about ours. 
Your body carries all your secret codes. It's a magic spell. Protect and nurture it. Oil it. However damaged it may be, physically or psychologically, it is still your Garden of Eden, if I'm to put it that way. You'll never know who you are if you're constantly running from yourself. If you never sit still and be curious about your mind, body, and soul. If you're always looking for peace and adoration from the outside world while your inner child screams for attention. Flaunt your body. Touch your body. Feed your body. Look at your body. Love your body. What a wonderful, insightful time I've had with you today. I do hope these nuggets of thought sparked something within you that will grant you power to hold conversations around men's bodies with yourself if you're a man and with your friends and with your partner or partners if you're a woman, man, gender non-conforming, gay or trans. Your feedback is one of my favorite things to look forward to these days. So hit me up on email via afromasculinitypodcast at gmail.com. That's afromasculinitypodcast at gmail.com. Follow on Twitter at afromen underscore pod. We are on Instagram as afromenpod and identify on Facebook as afromasculinitypodcast. All channels are open and available to you. I'll soon create a segment within the podcast where I'll be playing voice notes and reading some of the thoughts you send me from all over the world. I am incredibly grateful for the support, patience, and exchange you've accorded me since I began this. It is not easy work, but I do not see myself living if I do not do it. It's been fun hanging out. Sanitize, sanitize, sanitize. Stay safe. I am and always will be yours. Onyango Otieno, signing out.